Welcome back to It's All Relative and the fourth and final episode about the circumstances surrounding the death of Danny Hansard in Savannah, Georgia in May of 1981. Look, I'm tired. This is a true crime podcast. And this is the fourth in a series. If you are foolish enough to not only start listening to this podcast with this episode and or take umbrage to the rated R or MA nature of what you are listening to, I ask you to think about who it was that tuned in and then kept listening. Plus, this is another reminder that this podcast is just me, me, and me. I do my best, but should you take umbrage with anything I say or have said, keep in mind that I am poorer than a church mouse in a desert. Before we resume Danny's tale, the dead south will set the mood for you and I will see you on the other side. Danny Hansford was the exact opposite of a Southern gentleman. By all accounts, he was an unstable person whose mood and rational nature could change on a dime to a Hyde-like version of himself. He had made his way in the world using drugs and sex as if he were playing a trope in a movie. What did Danny believe in? His girlfriend Debbie said he was fixated on death to the point of driving by cemeteries and pointing out the kind of headstone he wanted. All three books portray him as trying to get Jim Williams to kill him. Williams, on the other hand, was the epitome of Georgia charm. He knew that riches held sway, but knowledge is power. He knew how to garner favor. The man knew people who knew people. All of this just makes the role of Valerie Bowles, or Minerva in the original book and the movie, that much more interesting. It feels like that relationship should be a really important detail. You would think that Danny's obsession with death would have had him demanding to meet with Valerie. And how did Jim Williams meet her in the first place? Known as Miss Minerva in John Barron's book and in the Clint Eastwood movie, Valerie Bowles was a root worker. If you're not sure what that is, the best analog I can come up with is a shaman or a witch doctor. Just to be pedantic, Valerie was not a voodoo priestess, even though that is the word both John Barrent and the movie used to describe her practice. This is hoodoo, not voodoo. Once again, I'm about to distill an immensely complicated subject down to a few sentences. In this case, two immensely complicated subjects. I will do my best. Both hoodoo 
and voodoo evolved from the beliefs and practices of Central and Western Africa, which the slaves brought with them to the colonies. As these things do, the traditions changed as Western culture and religions were absorbed into the two systems. Voodoo is much more of a religion which is expressed by certain practices, while hoodoo is more of a cultural tradition which is also expressed by certain practices. To people unfamiliar with the two systems, they can easily be mistaken for one another. In theory, a believer in voodoo can also practice hoodoo, and a believer in either system can also consider themselves a Christian or a Muslim or whatever. The easiest way to think about it is that hoodoo is a practical application of ways to manipulate both the physical and the spiritual worlds. A user of hoodoo does not worship anyone or anything, at least not as a rule. You wouldn't talk about using voodoo any more than you would talk about using Lutheranism. You can use the practices of voodoo to help you, just like you can use the practices of Lutheranism to help you, or help others. And you can use voodooan practices in your worship of or devotion to the supernatural beings you believe in just like you use Lutheran or Catholic or Pentecostal or whatever to worship God. The clip that's about to follow is from the movie. Jim Williams is played by Kevin Spacey. John Barrent, or John Kelso in the film, is played by John Cusack. And Valerie Bowles, or Miss Minerva in the film, is played by Irma P. Hall. Jim Williams and John Kelso are going to meet Minerva in the cemetery just prior to midnight. Danny's name is changed to Billy in the film, and the person they're casting a spell on towards the end of the clip is the DA, Spencer Lawton, who is called Finley Largent in the film. I have cut some of the atmospheric noise for time considerations. I think it's time you meet the most important member of my defense team. We going to the cemetery? Not Bonaventure, but colored cemeteries down the road. Well, looks like we got the garden all to ourselves tonight. <laughs> John, meet Minerva. I feel sorry for you. Oh, do tell Minerva. He didn't nobody love him. <clears throat> That's silly. We've never met. You got a hole in you. Too many questions. Don't know whether to feel this way or that without answers. Well... There ain't no answers. <laughs> you come a long way to find that out, didn't you? <laughs> now we gotta get to work. You bring the money. Yeah. Put it on the grave. Kiss it first so it come back to you. You bring the shiny dimes. Bury him. He's working hard again, you James. Who, Dr. Buzzard? No. No, the boy. The dead boy. Oh, Billy, well, that doesn't surprise us. Ain't got much dead time left. Dead time? Last an hour. Half hour before midnight till half past. 
half hour before midnight for working good, half hour after for evil. And we're gonna need a little both tonight. You got the bottle of water. Ain't been through no pipe. Give it to me. We got to make him loosen up on James. I need jungle. And a little ogun. Tell me something about him. He tried to kill me? No. They poured in something good. Your kind words take root. Flower come back to bless you. Something that made him happy? His Camaro. He loved his Camaro. He wouldn't let anyone near it. That car was his pride and joy. Keep talking. It's working. It's working. He, um, he spray-painted it. Flat black. Oh, you should have seen him. He spent hours on that car, fixing it, cleaning it, painted uh, racing straps on it and all kinds of other things. He was very creative. That's something most people didn't know about Billy. He was an artist. Ah, just now when you were saying them things, I felt him ease off. He heard you say you love him. No, that, that's preposterous. He tried to kill me. Roger Tundale! He was working again, you James, and now I know why. He wants you to tell the whole world you hated him. Maybe they think you hate him enough to kill him. If you do that, you go to jail, and he know that. Most important thing, you got to beg that boy's forgiveness each and every day. Time for evil. Quick, quick. Tell me his name. Finley Larson. When you get home, write his name seven times on a piece of paper. Connect all the names into one. Dot no I's, cross no T's. Fold it twice and put it in your pocket. Get a picture. Sew up the mouth with dove's blood. Blacken the eyes. Now go, I got worse. Boy, take these words to heart. To understand the living, you gotta commune with the dead. Now go, and don't you dare look back. Uh, Jim, on the grave, who, who is Dr. Buzzard? Well, Minerva was married to Dr. Buzzard, who was the foremost voodoo practitioner in Beaufort County. You may not know her, but you are deep in voodoo country. I don't give much stock to the hocus-pocus of it, but I do believe in the spiritual force behind it. The, uh, shiny dimes were easy, but the virgin water was a trick or two. Well, what, how do you know she wouldn't know the difference if it was just tap water? Not by looking or taste, but she would have known in an instant just looking at my face. I think the uh, photo doctoring is going to be good therapy. 
What about the pleas for daily forgiveness? No, I don't think that's going to be happening, definitely not. In the telling of this tale, the authors treat Valerie Bowles like she's an interesting sidebar. Comic relief. John Barron's description of her is even somewhat of a stereotype. Quote, Minerva was sitting in a small room under a bare light bulb. She was like a sack of flour. Her cotton dress was stretched tight over her round body. Her skin was pale brown and her face was as round as a tranquil moon. Her gray hair was pulled back in a bun except for two little pigtails, one hanging over each ear. She wore a pair of purple-tinted wire-rimmed glasses. The table in front of her was piled high with bottles, vials, twigs, boxes, and odd bits of cloth. The floor was littered with shopping bags, some bulging, some empty. When she saw William, she broke into a broad, gap-toothed smile and motioned for us to sit down on two folding chairs. I've been waiting for you, baby, she said in a half-whispered voice. End quote. She's like a caricature. But I must also add that John Barrett swears that everything he wrote about her, including his part in making the film, was accurate. Her appearance, her manner of speaking, her activities. From an article in Savannah Magazine dated April 2014 called Sunny with a Chance of Midnight, Sonny Seiler, Jim's attorney for all but his first trial, said, quote, One of the people that impressed me the most was the real Minerva, Valerie Fennel Aiken Bowles. She was very, very nice. She liked John Barrett. Of course, she loved Jim. I remember her because Jim had introduced me to her a couple of times in Forsyth Park. She'd come to hang out there and Jim would give her $20 or something because she'd tell him what was going on in the community, which he valued. She was his mole. End quote. And back to Barrent. Quote, Williams took little interest in the legal side of his upcoming trial. Instead, he busied himself with the miscellaneous end of things which is to say he played psychodice incessantly and allowed Minerva to become a lurking presence around Mercer House. She performed the appropriate rituals for removing a curse from the house, just in case there was one, and she also cast spells on people William suspected of wishing him ill. By chance, I happened to see her in the midst of one of these ceremonies. It was an afternoon in March, and the annual tour of homes was in progress. As usual, Williams had refused to open Mercer House to the tourists but Lee and Emma Adler had happily thrown open their doors. William stood at his living room window smoking a cigarillo and making wry comments as he watched visitors trooping up the Adler's front steps across the street. He motioned me over to the window. Two well-dressed couples were walking single file up the Adler's steps. Minerva was right behind them, carrying her trademark shopping bag. At the top of the steps, she paused while the others went inside. Then... After looking around in all directions, she reached into the bag and flung what appeared to be a handful of dirt into the little garden below. She threw another handful down the steps. Williams laughed. Was that graveyard dirt? I asked. What else? He said. Taken from a graveyard at midnight? When else? Minerva went inside the Adler's house. What on earth is she doing in there? I asked. Her usual mumbo-jumbo, I suppose, said Williams. Twigs, leaves, feathers, exotic, powders, chicken bones. I told her Lee Adler controls the DA, and that's all she had to hear. 
Minerva's been a very busy witch lady. She's been out at Vernonburg several times to dress down Spencer Lawton's house, and yesterday she paid a call on Judge Oliver's cottage in Tybee. She's thrown graveyard dirt at some of the best homes in Savannah. God bless her. End quote. And look, Valerie Bowles was important enough to meet more than an hour's drive away in the dark of night, either side of midnight as all the titles suggest, and make an effort to gather up all the random items she requests before they even make the trip. The shiny dimes, the water that had never been through a pipe, and held in a mason jar with no metal lid. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. It's hard because I think she's such an interesting person. However, there really isn't that much more information on her, and I do want to keep this as relevant to Danny as possible. Towards the end of the film, after Jim's acquittal, Valerie, slash Minerva, knows there is still a problem with Danny's ghost, so she goes to get John Barrett, played by John Cusack, to accompany her to Danny's grave. Hey, boys! What do you got? Come on down. We got to go visit the boy. We got to make him quit working, James. Trial's over, Minerva. Billy can't do anything to James now. Why I come to you? Because you, out of everybody, know it ain't over yet. I know, the boy know, and you know, justice ain't been done yet. I'll come down for a minute. I don't know about this. That's exactly why you come this far. Billy always love wild turkey. He ain't happy here. Ain't what he thought it'd be. If you ain't in heaven yet, you want to get there, don't you, boy? And the only way you're gonna get up is if you quit playing with James. influence with the dead. They can lift you up. Nobody else can do that for you. Nobody. Don't you laugh at me. You think you had a harsh life. You got no idea. Never had no bills to pay, no children to feed, no house to clean. You had it easy. Well, you can just lay there. Whether Valerie knew Danny personally or not, she knew that Danny would not have been happy, or was not happy, depending upon your belief in the afterlife, with Jim being acquitted of his death, and she knew that Danny was prone to lash out. William's second trial ended in conviction, but quickly witnesses emerged claiming that Danny Hansford had actually been plotting to kill Jim and had asked around for someone to do it for him. This was actually one of the points at which the defense was accused of paying off witnesses. 
What Seiler actually appealed on, though, was the basis of a particular expert witness testifying in a manner that was actually prejudicial against Williams. From Kirkland, quote, In a 4-3 decision written by Justice George T. Smith, the court reversed Williams' second conviction on the grounds that allowing an expert witness in homicide investigations to testify to conclusions regarding the scene of a suspected homicide was a violation so serious that the case had to be reversed. Even though the defense hadn't complained of the error, and even though the error was deemed harmless by the court, hence striking a mighty blow in the name of jury ignorance. End quote. The court also cited that the closing argument of the prosecution had actually introduced new evidence, which is not the role of the closing argument. Sounds a bit like the ASCII in the prosecution of Russ Faria. In fact, one of the hosts from the Magnum Reed podcast has this to say about the prosecution's attempt to create a new theory of the crime in the closing argument. Uh, yeah, and so this is the one where um, the prosecutor pulls a little bit of a... Uh... Well, yeah, let's frame it. The first trial ends largely because in his closing statement, he presented a, the prosecutor presented a novel, never-before-argued-in-the-case legal theory... Uh, no, second. He did it in the first one. He, did, he does it in the second one too. In the first, in the first okay, one, he, yeah. he does the thing about the police officer, where he says this that the, oh, right. this shooting that occurred a little bit before it was used as a key aspect of their case to try to say that the victim was violent and a threat to substantiate their their um, um, self defense defense. Uh, that he a month earlier he'd fired a gun and been arrested by police. In his closing statement, the prosecutor says that all of that was fabricated. And this attorney, this um, investigator said as much, that the bullet hole in question was brand new, um, blah, 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 which is all fresh argument in a way you can never possibly do in your closing. You learned that in 101 law school. And the verdict is overturned largely on the basis of that kind of new argument that the other side can't rebut because it's in a closing statement. Second trial, he tries to do the exact damn thing again. <laughs> this yes. time. And, and he... he... So it, it's referenced that the uh, prosecutor is a big fan of Perry yeah. Mason. And so this is very oh, yeah. much like the uh, uh, book and TV show Perry Mason, where in his closing arguments, he sort of brings up something completely new and is supposed to sway everybody in the courtroom. And he, he essentially does so because in the second trial, one of the big things that um, uh, Siler uh, makes a big deal about is the heavy pull on the gun, the uh, German Luger that uh, Danny was supposed mm -hmm. to have fired, and so it's because it's that uh, heavy pull and the uh, that it's not particularly reliable in how it sprays gunpowder, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that all of these that he missed uh, Jim Williams and you know the powder is weird, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in his closing statements, Williams uh, brandishes the gun and you know. Yep presumably unloaded, but it's Georgia, you never know, and uh, pulls the trigger a couple of times, showing that, that it, it has a very uh, well, light pull, and so... Even more the, uh, even more theatrically, he has a purposefully small and ephemeral uh, associate, the prosecutor has a purposely small and ephemeral associate of his do the pulling of the trigger, just to oh, show yes. that yeah. e even That's more right. so to the jury that this aspect he, of his case... E even a... Uh, uh, a small and, and weak woman or whatever it was fired yeah. this gun which at this point i was just screaming in my seat of where okay this is not even just not knowing the law this is a lack of pattern recognition of where you got your first verdict thrown out doing the exact same shit and you're trying it twice i mean i, I early on i had a pretty negative impression of both sets of attorneys i think i think even the, the 
when the narrator goes to talk with them, I think including the prosecutor, they both talk about how, oh yeah, we got all these incredible surprise witnesses. They're gonna, they're gonna, you know, completely knock them off the rocker. There's no way they can be prepared for them. And I'm just sitting here reading this with my head cocked, going, okay, none of you know criminal procedure, or assuming the judge doesn't, I guess, because you really only are allowed <laughs> surprise witnesses on like two things, and neither of them are proving your case. So, okay. Power to you. Let's see how this plays out. And it just goes downhill from there. <laughs> oh, the ranting I could do if this case were specifically about Jim Williams and or the trial. And we are now on to trial number three. And there were a few problems for the prosecution. The first problem was that it had been discovered that Danny's hands had not been bagged at the scene in direct contradiction to the sworn statement of the detectives and the medical examiner. In fact, the M.E. had called the hospital and spoken with the intake nurse, who had previously worked with him at the M.E.'s office, and told her that if the hands had not been bagged, then she should bag them. The nurse found that the hands had not been bagged, and she proceeded to bag them at the hospital, with plastic bags. The lie confirming the hand bagging at the scene did not look good for the cops or the prosecution. The plastic bags probably destroyed whatever GSR was left on Danny's hands. Paper bags are preferred to preserve gunshot residue and any other evidence. There was also the problem of a juror. One of the jurors had been in a situation in which she had had to kill someone in self-defense. When it came time for deliberation, she deadlocked the jury by refusing to convict him. Personally, I think it's entirely stupid that a person can be tried for a crime and judged by people who are not supposed to be sympathetic to the defendant nor fully informed about the situation in which the crime, whatever it is, happened. Is that not the very definition of the word peer, as in, you are to be judged by a jury of your peers? Well, the judge sent the jury home for the day with the instruction to come back the next day and reach a verdict. Unfortunately, the same juror was unsure about some of the evidence in the case, so she called an EMT and asked for some information from him. This action nullified the jury and caused an immediate mistrial. This is a whole additional problem with the judicial system regarding people making decisions about other people's liberty without a full understanding of the circumstances. This is not a place for that discussion, so I will resist having it. Depp Kirkland was interviewed by Collier Landry. You can find the interview on YouTube if you're interested. Part of the interview addressed this juror. Years later, when I was working on the book, I came back and I talked to uh, Detective Reagan, who was the homicide detective, lead detective in that case. He was running a task force at the time. I went to see him. I said, so what do you think about all this? And we talked about the third trial, which ended 11 to 1. There was a person on there that hung that jury. And he said, well, you know what happened in that case? I said, no, I didn't. And in fact, the DA didn't know it. My friend, he didn't know that. This is what I'm working on the book years later. He says, the fact was, I, we already tried this twice. Here's a third trial, and my uh, lieutenant would not allow me to go to the jury selection portion of the trial because I'd already spent so much time on this thing. And he's like, look, you go to the trial because, as you know, uh, the, the, the detectives will, will sit with the prosecution during the trial. So he was going to do that. But he didn't go to the jury selection portion, which they normally would. They'd be there from day one. He said, he wouldn't let me go. He said, I got other things to do. You've got cases. You don't need to go down there and watch and pick a jury. So he didn't go. And he said, if I had been there, that woman would never have been on the jury. Really? I know her. I had served warrants at her house. 
Her husband, her boyfriend slash husband, is what we call a safe burglar. These are the guys that would break into a into a store, take the safe out, burn the store, and take this. I mean, this guy is a professional criminal. We have been after him, and she is his girl, and we've been to her house. I know her like I know. What was she doing on the jury? She's on the jury. That's incredible. How did that happen? I said, Well, I don't think Spencer knew any of that. He said, Well, if I'd been there, I'd have told him. Well, she hung the jury. And there was no way she was going to convict. Again, I am going to refrain from a long discussion. In any event, Jim Williams is to be tried yet again. This time, Siler requests and receives a change of venue. The fourth time Jim Williams faced a judge and jury, it was in Augusta, and Augusta heard the evidence and then acquitted him. Kirkland had this to say about Augusta. Now, my analysis was, that the people in this other city who didn't know him, this is something else that happens with juries. This case had been tried three times. Now you're in a different city and all of a sudden here comes this trial into your town and you're on a sitting on a jury. You think, well, isn't this, and it was well known throughout the state of Georgia. It was a big deal. There were allegations connected to the former governor. I mean, the Supreme Court, some shenanigans here. It was all over the paper. Everybody knew about this case. So, You see that it's been brought here. You see that he's been tried three times. You see that he's still here. So those those trials, those convictions were reversed. Then there was a hung jury. So what are you thinking? Thinking something's wrong with this case. There must be a reason that they keep throwing it out. This is subconscious. There must be a reason they had to come to Augusta to get justice for this man. Got to be something to this. And my final comment about it was, and you look at this guy. And he doesn't look like the commandant of the tank corps anymore. He looks like this harmless old man. And you know what? It's been nine and a half years. He's probably not going to kill anybody else. And if he does, it's not going to be in my town. So what you are confirming, Depp, is that Jim Williams could not receive a fair trial in Savannah because everyone was familiar with Williams, the case, and all the Savannah gossip. The first three of Jim's trials were held in Savannah. No matter what the instructions from the judge, I have a hard time believing that the jurors would be able to be unbiased in making their guilty or not guilty determination. If nothing else, Savannah is known for its gossipy nature. Just living in Savannah means that you would hear whispers about Jim Williams and Danny Hansford. Augusta was not so far away that the people wouldn't have at least heard of the case but they wouldn't have had the personal stake in the case, nor would the gossip necessarily have been about anything related. Also, like it or not, we as human beings tend to make judgments about people based on what we see. A person's age, their physical appearance, how they dress, these things do have sway when we are making a determination about that person. Jim Williams is acquitted. Now, I want to be clear. I've seen the crime scene photos. That crime scene was not secure and evidence did get moved around while the police were there. However, even with all of that, I'm still convinced that the scene was set up. I also think that there was a great deal of politics involved in the incessant trying of Williams for Danny's murder. The three episodes of the Magnum Reads podcast goes into this more than any other podcast or any of the four main sources I use for my research. If Jim Williams had actually been old money, I'm fairly convinced he would not have seen the inside of a courtroom. I also think that the reason witnesses kept appearing to exonerate him and his appeals kept going 
through was all of his connections to old money and said secrets of same. Jim Williams makes it six months after his acquittal. He develops pneumonia and then his heart gives out. There are, of course, rumors that he had had AIDS. It was 1990 and the height of that epidemic. Williams had supposedly shown no signs of being sick, so AIDS has been generally discounted. He'd actually just come back from a party when his heart failed. However, I would like to add that Williams was not the kind of person to appear sick. He would do whatever he had to to present his best foot. The coroner put his death down to pneumonia, and in order for pneumonia to be bad enough to kill you, people tend to be obviously sick, especially in 1990 when most people recovered just fine from pneumonia. Quote from Barrett. Minerva, of course, had her own idea about what had happened. It was the boy that done it, she said. A little notice detail of Williams's death lent an eerie ring of truth to her pronouncement. Williams had died in his study, in the same room where he had shot Danny Hansford. He had been found lying on the carpet behind the desk, in the very spot where he would have fallen eight years earlier if Danny Hansford had actually fired a gun and the shots had found their mark. End quote. Danny Hansford's father left him when he was small and committed suicide when Danny was not much older. Danny's mother married very young and by the time she had her third marriage was deeply depressed. In a time when people generally did not understand mental disability and disease, Danny didn't really have a chance. To be fair, I don't believe the cards were stacked in Jim Williams' favor either. Danny was full of manic anger and violence that he didn't understand and he couldn't control. The few times he might have gotten help, the system let him down. It seemed only a matter of time until something terrible happened. The mud icing on a shit cake is that he is at the center of a nationally known story. But he's only a shadow puppet, a non-playing character in the game being played in Savannah. If you like the show, please like, rate, and review, and subscribe. Don't be shy. It helps other listeners to find it. If you don't like the show, I have an easy solution. Just stop listening. It's easy. I'm putting the Patreon and contact details in the show notes. Stop on in. Say hello. The band will see you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. Crowd and breathe.